So would you please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. And you keep one finger there and then open to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. If you can, would you stand and let's read God's glorious word. Starting with Jeremiah chapter 31. It's the words of a new covenant that the Lord will be making with his people. So we read in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach his brother, saying, Oh, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And here's why. In this new community, they're all saved, they're all pardoned. For I will forgive their iniquity, and now you remember their sin no more. Now let's go to Isaiah chapter 53. And Isaiah will tell us how this new covenant will be established. And how the forgiveness of sins will be accomplished. In Isaiah 53. Here's the prophecy of the prophet Isaiah. He's speaking about the suffering servant. Starting verse 3, he says, He, referring to the servant, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken and smitten by God. And afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 8 By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. Verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, or a guilt offering, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you through Jesus our Messiah, the perfect mediator. And we cry out for the Holy Spirit to be helping us. Help me, help this wonderful congregation, Lord. We are beggars. Our Lord taught us that if we who are evil give good gifts to our children, how much more our Heavenly Father will not give us the Spirit in a new measure when we cry out. And we need, we need the Holy Spirit here working us. Open our eyes. We pray that you would feed us, nourish us through your word, Lord. I, I praise you and I thank you for the support of this church. Lord, it, it's humbling to, to be surrounded by brothers and sisters who love me and support me to preach the word, so I pray they'll help me, help me to be faithful, Lord. 
I desperately need you. We can do nothing without Christ. So help us, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. In his book, Let It Go, Forgive So You Can Be Forgiven, T.D. Jakes writes about how forgiving others empowers us, but empowers us to be more successful. And successful and success is a key word in a book about forgiveness by T.D. Jakes. He's often talk about how successful you become by forgiving others. Very little about the glory of God, very little about sin. Maybe there was one mention of sin. Instead of talking about sin, it's mistakes, foolish things we do, but let's not put the word sin in a book about forgiveness. In page 33 of his book, he writes, Forgiveness, then, is a gift you must find a way to give yourself, regardless of who or what has dropped you into this grievous state of affairs. I earnestly believe that unforgiveness is the leading cause of divorce, not adultery. Unforgiveness has damaged office relationships and undermined the teamwork that increase your profit or the profit margins and collapses with the best, the best of the best into a business model with higher yields and greater prof- proficiency. Forgiveness isn't about weakening you, but strengthening you to live again and love again, performing at your highest capacity. So that's what he believes about forgiveness. And why I'm, I'm bringing him to you is because this is the best-selling book, one of the best-selling books about forgiveness in your local Christian bookstore. That's why it's selling. And I was watching uh, an interview, and T.D. Jakes was being interviewed about this book. And in the beginning, began very well. He's talking about how forgiving others is so important that helps you to see the glory of God. And I was like, whoa. But then he says, but most importantly, most importantly, it has health benefits. You become more creative, you become more resourceful, and you sleep better. That's what we see being taught in Christian circles about forgiveness. How you can become successful. How can you become a better you? And this type of malady, this type of gangrene is spreading Throughout the churches. Forgiveness is all about you becoming a better person. You unleashing your potential. You becoming more successful. You making more profitable profit. But actually when you look at the Bible. And the whole drum of scriptures. And the whole drum of forgiveness. That has nothing to do with our profit and success. It's all about God's glory. To show us how we cannot forgive ourselves before God, and we cannot find forgiveness of sins on our own. The whole drum of forgiveness is to show a God who is glorious, forgiving, merciful, and a people who apart from this God can never find forgiveness of sins. And he says, well, forgiveness is not to weaken you. Really. It's to humble us, to humiliate us. To dress the ground like Moses with his face to the dust. The psalmist says in Psalm 130. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. And here's the reason why. Not that you may become more successful. That you may be what? Feared. Forgiveness of sins should bring fear in our hearts. Fear of the Lord. Jesus says that those who know how much they have been forgiven, those who are forgiven much will do what? 
love much. Not love yourself much. Love God much. Love others much. Amen? What a contrast we see. And that's why it's so important to have this drama. To know the Bible storyline and how forgiveness has been developing throughout the whole Bible. Otherwise, we're going to come up with this cancerous teachings that have been spreading throughout the church. Amen? So my goal as we are tracing this biblical theology of forgiveness, as we are tracing from Genesis to Revelation, is to lay a foundation for you to understand what biblical forgiveness is. That's why we are going through slowly. We went through Genesis 3, Exodus 12, Leviticus 16. Today we're going to continue journey through the Old Testament. Why? So we have a sound theology. You have a, the grounds. You know how the storyline of forgiveness is. Amen? So, we saw in our first sermon how forgiveness is central in the story of the Bible. We saw how forgiveness is central in the character of God. Do you remember what text we went to in the first sermon? Exodus 34. That's the greatest revelation of God in the Old Testament where he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate, is low to anger, forgiving iniquity, sin, rebellion. Remember? And that's the God. So it's central to his character to be merciful, forgiving. And then last Lord's Day, we start tracing this whole theme of forgiveness. We walk through Genesis 3.15, that there will be a sacrifice, the sacrifice of the seed who would bring forgiveness. Then we saw how that is developed in Exodus 12 with the Passover lamb, the hyssop. And then only goes to Leviticus 16 with the day of atonement, the day of forgiveness, with the two goats, one taking our sins away, the other bringing the blamelessness that we need into God's presence. And you've got to think about because Right there with Exodus, Leviticus, we have the whole sacrificial system. And that's God's means to bring forgiveness is through the sacrificial system. But you've got to keep in mind that the sacrificial system is not automatic. Even with the sacrificial system, two things were required for forgiveness to be accomplished. One was repentance, contrition, brokenness. That's why you have passages throughout the scriptures that says, "Do, do not bring your sacrifice to me. Do not bring your sacrifice. Why? Because your heart's not broken. But then it's not just a broken heart. Then you need to bring the blameless sacrifice too. You need both. And that's what we see playing. Because if you say, oh Lord, please forgive me. I'm so broken. But I will not sacrifice my best for you. That's not repentance. So you need both. You need that contrition, the brokenness, and then you need the sacrifice. So that's all we see through the sacrificial system. So today we're going to continue our journey here. And here's the outline. So the rest of the Old Testament, or the Tanakh, we're going to be looking at the Gentiles and forgiveness of sins, the temple and forgiveness of sins, the Psalms, and then the prophets. Amen. And pray for me that we'll be able to move quickly, smoothly, and clearly. So let's go to the first one, and that is the Gentiles and forgiveness of sins. I'm just choosing three, three major examples of forgiveness of sins with the Gentiles. And the first one is Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. And remember Joshua chapter 2, when they are coming to Jericho, and Rahab is there, a very unclean Gentile woman, and what happens is she hears, she listens to the what? The good news. The good news came to Jericho that the God of Israel had brought them out of Egypt with a mighty arm. So she hears, she believes in the Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. And then what does she do? She, she hides the spies. And she's justified by faith, repentance, not because, so sometimes people say, do you see, so it's okay to lie because she lied. No, no, the Bible never says that she's praised because she lied. She's, she's praised because she believed God and she was willing to forsake her old life. 
So she appears in, in the book of James. She appears in the letter of Hebrews as a hero of faith. Why? Because of her faith and repentance. Willingness to change her lifestyle. And you remember that she needs to put the, the, the scarlet rope around the where? The window because or the door there, the window door, that, that's where they escaped. And think about the red thing around a window is taking us back. Joshua is taking us back where? To the Passover. To the Passover. That's what Joshua is doing here. Taking us back to the Passover through the sacrifice of the lamb. Place upon the entrance of the house. There was forgiveness of sins. It's amazing. In Joshua chapter 6 verse 20, 25. Joshua 6 verse 25 says that Rahab went to live in Israel. Why is that important? God's people. She's moving. She's leaving behind her life. And now she is with the people of God. So that's repentance. Believe. Amen. So we see that. Okay, Rahab. How was she forgiven? And then she appears. It's amazing how she's in the line of David. And she's in the line of whom? Jesus, the Messiah. In Matthew. So... That's the first one. So we see how there was repentance, faith, forgiveness accomplished. Second example, Ruth. A beautiful example in the Old Testament. Ruth also. Do you remember Naomi with her husband? They moved to where? Moab. So here's a Moabite. And remember she's telling Naomi, I'm going back with you. The two daughters-in-law were saying, we're, we're going to go back. The first one doesn't go back with Naomi. She stays there. There is no repentance. But Ruth, no, Ruth, there is a change. And remember right in chapter 1, she says, Naomi, stop. I'm, I'm going with you. Your God will be my God and your people will be my people. That's covenantal language. She's changing gods and people. And she moves to the land to dwell with God's people. So you see, there is repentance, faith, a change of life, forgiveness. She's embraced in the community. She becomes a, an example to the people of Israel. And the last one is the Ninevites with Jonah. And Jonah was trying to escape his calling. He didn't, he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Why? Yeah, he, he knew that God is a forgiving and merciful God, and he did not want them to be forgiven. So he's trying to escape, running away from God's presence, and it doesn't work. So, remember after the fish vomits Jonah back into the land, like, oh... That wasn't very good to my stomach. So he vomits Jonah into the land. And then Jonah goes back to preach. And through the preaching, they believe. And then you go to Jonah chapter 3. The king, the ruler of Nineveh, he repents. He mourns for his sins. So there is faith, repentance, and there is what? Forgiveness. The Lord relents. The Lord forgives them. So... With the three accounts of Gentiles being forgiven by the Lord, it shows us God's forgiving heart, His merciful heart, and the largeness of His forgiving heart. It's not, it's not just for Israel. The Gentiles are part of this forgiving heart. And also we see that there was always faith and repentance. Amen? The next point we want to do is the temple. The temple and forgiveness. There is a beautiful text as they just crossed the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds. And then we have the song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15. And Moses sings to the Lord saying, You will bring them, that's the Lord speaking through Moses' song, You will bring them and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. What mountain is that? What mountain is that? 
Sinai first and then moves to what mountain? Zion. Yes. So Sinai first is the first pit stop and then Zion. So the Lord is promising them to bring them to his holy mountain that will become Zion. And that's important. Because so there is a pilgrim. So they are in a season where they have the tabernacle and this tabernacle is moving until they come to the Holy Land, and then they conquer, and then you have Mount Zion or Mount Moriah where they will build the temple right there. So there is this transition time when they have the tabernacle as the place of forgiveness, but this tabernacle is transitory because it's going to become a permanent place once they arrive at the mountain that the Lord has established for them. So I like what Gregory Beale says. He says, Israel's tabernacle may well have been conceived to be a traveling war headquarters from where the Lord directed the troops until all opposition was put down. When the enemies are defeated, then a more permanent dwelling can be built to signify God's sovereign resting from opposition, as happened during Solomon's reign. So once Solomon is reigning and there is peace, the end of opposition, what does he do? He builds the temple. There is a temple building program. And then you've got to read 1 Kings. That's where you have the temple build, being built. And now the temple becomes the place where they find what? Forgiveness. Because the temple now is the place of the sacrifices, the offerings, where they can go and find forgiveness for their sins. And we see that in 1 Kings, especially if you read 1 Kings 8, you see how often Solomon is praying for that place as a place of forgiveness of sins. So we read in verse 30 of chapter 8. It says, And listen to the plea of your servant and your people Israel when they pray towards this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, what? Forgive. Forgive. And so much of his prayer is about forgiveness that will be found throughout the temple. Another passage that we often read, especially in the U.S., is 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. So we hear a lot here in the U.S. People say, when I, that's the verse, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. But here's the problem. This promise is not to any nation. It's to a very specific nation. And what nation is that? Israel under the Old Covenant. The covenant terminology, I will be your God and you will be my people. So when God says, when my people, that's a covenantal language. And he's referring to the nation of Israel. He's not talking about the United States. He's not talking about Brazil. He's not talking about Peru, Mozambique, Saudi Arabia. That's very important. And especially if you keep reading Second Chronicles, you see how that is fulfilled in Second Chronicles. So, for example, King Josiah, he repents. He turns to the Lord, and what does the Lord do? He forgives. He heals the land. There is forgiveness. Or even evil King Manasseh, when he repents, just like it says in chapter 7, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, that's what Manasseh, the evil king, does. And what does the Lord do? He healed their land. He forgives them. So we see the importance, and it's all in the context of the temple, because there is a place for forgiveness. So James Hamilton, he says, God made provision for sin under the old covenant through the sacrificial system, and that was operating at the temple. God was present there, and there they could offer sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. That's very important. The temple. We are going to see next Lord's Day because suddenly forgiveness is found in the temple and we have the Messiah, Jesus, doing what? Forgiving people. Are you the temple? Is God dwelling here? That's why they think it's blasphemy. Uh, 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 uh. 
He's the temple of God. God's presence is there. So you start seeing how this is going to be developed. So in the historical books of our English Bible, so you think about the historical books, uh, moving from Joshua, move to Judges, Ruth, Samuel, King, Chronicles. Then you come to the more the post-exilic Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. All these books, you, sh- you, you can see God's heart, His willingness, His readiness to forgive people. But there's always the requirement of what? Repentance, confession, sacrifice, change. Okay? So that's very beautiful to see being developed throughout the scriptures. Uh, moving to the Psalms. The Psalms and forgiveness. That's a glorious place to learn about forgiveness of sins. One scholar says, The Psalms are perhaps the capstone of the Old Old Testament's eloquent testimony to the God who forgives. And as you read, we read earlier this morning, Psalm 103, about forgiveness. There are so many Psalms that talk about forgiveness. And that's the beauty of the Psalm, the book of Psalms. And the whole Bible is that on one hand, it reveals and shows the blessedness. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. There is a blessedness of forgiveness. It's beautiful. It's glorious, forgiveness of sins. But at the same time, on the other hand, you have imprecatory prayers. Calling God's curse upon the enemy. God's judgment upon his enemies. And we need to deal with that. So, for example, we see in the beautiful book of forgiveness, that is the Psalms, we we read, look at that, Psalm 55, 15. Let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go alive to the grave. Whoa. I thought that was about forgiveness. That's called imprecatory prayer, calling Praising God's curse and judgment upon the enemies. How about this one? Psalm 58, 6. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Oh, I thought there was forgiveness. Psalm 69, 28. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. So we see that the Psalms contain... Beautiful statements about forgiveness of sins and at the same time what? Judgment. The imprecatory prayers calling God's curse upon the enemies. And I, I, I think the problem we have is we, we are not balanced biblically. We are not balanced biblically. So we have been so imbalanced that we just want to know and talk about forgiveness and love and mercy and praise the Lord. But we cannot do that because the Bible is very well established. That there is righteousness, there is judgment, there is wrath. And we must deal with that in the theme of forgiveness. Because every time we talk about forgiveness, we never bring it up this part of the Bible. It's always, you need to forgive, you need to forgive, you need to forgive. The Bible tells, oh, but the Bible also tells us about God's holy, righteous judgments. And the Bible teaches us. To call on imprecatory prayers. So, what do we do? I like what uh, John Tweedale says. He writes, At root, an imprecatory psalm is an invocation of divine cursing. Examples of these imprecations include Psalm 5, 6, 35, 69, 109, all of which are cited in the New Testament. Curse pronouncements are interspersed throughout the biblical canon. For example, Jesus calls down woes of judgment on religious leaders in Matthew 23. And then you could argue, why isn't Jesus just forgiving them? But he calls, woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes. See, we need to have a balanced view of the scriptures. He goes on to say, Paul pronounces an anathema, be cursed. On anyone who preaches another gospel in Galatians 1. And the martyrs in heaven petition God to avenge their blood in Revelation 6. Loving our enemies in the New Testament never comes at the expense of foregoing appeals to divine justice. 
praying for God to punish the wicked is neither unloving nor vindictive, but it's an expression of faith in Him who judges justly. And we need to swallow that and digest that, and we cannot ignore that. That's what a lot of people want to do, just ignore the hard parts of the, what is hard for us. We can't. We're going to develop that when it comes to the New Testament. How can the glorified martyrs in heaven be crying out in Revelation 6, How long, O sovereign Lord, until you judge these evildoers? Do you think you are more sanctified than those who are in heaven? Do you think you have a more forgiving heart than the martyrs who are in heaven right now? And yet they call God to judge them. They're not saying, oh, how long, O Lord, until you forgive them? How long until you judge them, condemn them? And they are in heaven. It's the souls of those who are under the altar. And we need to deal with that. Amen? <laughs> That's very important. We don't read about these things in the topic of forgiveness, but it's right there. We must. We cannot divorce what God has put in a covenantal union. Amen? Okay, so, moving. We have, in the Psalms, we have the, what is called as penitential Psalms. So, Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, uh, 130, 143, they're known as penitential Psalms. And that, that's coming from the Latin Penitentia. And yes, it's used for penance, but that's not the meaning here. The Roman Catholic Church used for penance that you need to perform. But here, no, uh, penitentia in Latin was used for brokenness, repentance. And that's what these psalms are all about. The brokenness of the one who has sinned. The desire to be forgiven. And we see throughout the psalms, these confessions, repentance. And the key psalm, I believe, is Psalm 51. So turn with me to Psalm 51. I think of all the penitential psalms, all the psalms about forgiveness, Psalm 51 is the key. It says... To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan, the prophet, went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, committed adultery. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You don't forget, sin remains there, and it's a wonderful weapon and tool to take us back to God. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So he's not just asking forgiveness for sins committed, but his own sinfulness. I need forgiveness because my being is sinful. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than his snow. Then his cry, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your faces from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. That's all we are singing. Creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. You see, that's the key. That's what sin does. Cast us away from God's presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. And here's the result once he's forgiven. Then I will teach transgressor your, your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. Why? Because first he needs to be broken. There needs brokenness first. 
you will not be pleased with a burnt offering, the sacrifice of God, our broken spirit, a broken, contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And here, once there is forgiveness, do good to Zion. There is the restoration of God's people. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then, look at that, then we will delight in the right sacrifice in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. The bowls will be offered on your altar. What we learn here, first of all, is that forgiveness of sins is the fruit of God's mercy. It's His mercy, His loving kindness. That's verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. A broken heart always required a sacrifice. There needs a sacrifice. And the sacrifice needs a broken heart. We see how confession of sin is essential to forgiveness to be accomplished. We hear so often people saying that there is no need to confess your sins. People don't need to repent. People don't need to confess their sins. You just need to forgive. That's not what we have been seeing through all the scriptures. And we see how forgiveness of sins leads to teaching and singing. And singing. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. There's so much you could go through. We just don't have time. But we see key aspects of forgiveness. And these things here are developed through the Psalms. All the penitential Psalms. There's repentance, confession of sins, a change. And there's the forgiveness and the desire to praise the Lord because of His forgiveness towards us. And last, we move to the prophets. The prophets and forgiveness of sins. Think about the history of Israel. Israel, just like Adam, they fall, they break their covenant with the Lord. And what happens to Israel? They are expelled from the land. They are kicked out of the land. Exile. And God sends the Babylonians to come and destroy the temple. They burn the temple. The place of sacrifice, the place of forgiveness of sin is burned to the ground. It's a hopeless time for Israel. And it's here where the, when the Lord starts raising prophets to speak about a future hope. Something that will take place in the future. And the prophet starts speaking about the kingdom of God coming. The king will come with his kingdom. And one key aspect of this kingdom is forgiveness of sins. That's why when Jesus comes, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God, and he's taking us back to the prophets. The key aspect of the coming kingdom would be forgiveness of sins. Uh, it's tempting for us to look uh, at the prophets and think that the prophets, they are preachers of gloom and doom. We always think that if you go to the prophets, you're only going to find judgment and, and gloom and doom. But if you open up the lenses and start looking at the prophetic voice, you see that there was a lot of hope. There was a lot of hope. They're always preaching salvation through judgment. There will be salvation through God's judgment. I like what Hayes writes. He says, The prophets show us God's great capacity for forgiveness, reflected in His constant call for repentance and renewal of the hearts of His wayward people. And when you look at the prophets, they're speaking of a future, a future restoration, and that's going to be in two phases with two servants. The first phase is release from the Babylonian captivity. That's a physical release. And who is the first servant? Cyrus, the Persian king. He's the one who will release people from captivity to go back. But the most important release that we have is not the release from the Babylonian captivity, but it is what? Release from the captivity of sin. Because you can get people out of Babylon, but how do you get Babylon out of the people? And that's just by the work of the Messiah. That's the second servant, the suffering servant. And he's the one who's going to bring the forgiveness of sins. So that's important to keep in mind. So looking at Jeremiah first, if you go to the book of Jeremiah, we, we see that the theme of forgiveness, one scholar writes, the theme of forgiveness occurs more often in the book of Jeremiah than in any other prophetical book. This emphasis is remarkable given the book's overall message of impending doom. It's coming. Judgment's coming. And yet there's so much about forgiveness in the book of Jeremiah. 
And Jeremiah, just like the Psalms, Jeremiah also shows, yes, there is this beauty, this glory of forgiveness, but there is this other aspect of God's judgment. So, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 7, we hear the Lord speaking to Jeremiah, As for you, do not pray for these people, or lift up a cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Meaning what? The time has come. I'm a forgiving God. My heart is overflowing with forgiveness, but I'm a holy God. And you don't play with me. You don't mess with me. There's no cheap grace. I have known people who said, I'm going to sin and God will forgive me. And these people who did that are completely lost. Are completely lost. I know them. People who said that to me in my face, I will sin and God will forgive me. And that's what they were thinking they could do with the Lord. Continue in sin and God will just forgive. Remember the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We have the temple with us. The Lord says, no, I'm going to destroy the temple. I'm going to take you into captivity. And the time of forgiveness is over with these people. So, and Jeremiah, it's fascinating that Jeremiah reflects the character of God. So in Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 23 says, Look at the prophet says, Yet you, O Lord, know all their plotting to kill me. Forgive not their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. Oh, Jeremiah, that's so unloving, so unforgiving. And suddenly we start thinking that we are holier than the inspired Authors of the Bible. So that we start to think that we know better than God himself. So, there are other passages throughout the scripture, but we need to, in our understanding of forgiving, forgiveness of sins, we still must wrestle with this part. There's a time when I can even ask God to not forgive those people and judge them. Is there a time when I can do that? I thought I was always commanded to forgive and be forgiving. But there is a time when I can literally say, Lord, forgive them not. For they know what they're doing. Hmm. But we're never taught that. We just forgive them for they not know what they're doing. But that's the same God. It's the same character. It's the same holy God. It's not that there's a God in the Old Testament, a God in the New Testament, or that the red letter in your Bible is more inspired than the other writings that's not red. No. And say, ah, that's just the Old Testament. Read First John chapter 5. John says, if someone is committing the sin unto death, don't even pray for that person. That's the New Testament. So, What do we do? See how we need the Holy Spirit to help us? According to Jeremiah 36, verse 3, Jeremiah 36, verse 3, judgment is one of God's means to bring people to repentance. So we, we, we read there, it says, It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them, so that everyone may turn from his evil way, and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So it's during this dark time, during this dark season of the, the history of Israel, that the Lord starts bringing words out, so with words of judgment, words of hope, words of forgiveness of sins. Because remember Jeremiah's call, he has a calling from the Lord, and his call from the Lord is to pluck up, pull down, overthrow and destroy. Do you remember how the Lord calls Jeremiah to do that? You have been called. Pull up. Throw. Destroy. But also to do what? The Lord tells. 
but also to build up and plant judgment and forgiveness. That was the call of the prophets and embodying Jeremiah. So as we come to Jeremiah, especially Jeremiah chapters 30 through 33, that's known as the book of consolation or the book of comfort. And that's when the Lord starts telling his people that he will come with a new covenant to bring the end of sins and restore his people. And it's just connecting from chapter 29 in Jeremiah 29. And that's another passage that's often taken out of context. All scripture is applicable, but there is a context in Jeremiah 29, 11. You remember the Lord says, I know the plans I have for you, referring to Israel under the old covenant. And he says, ways of peace. Paths of peace I have in mind for you. And then you come to chapter 30. He's going to explain how this shalom, how this peace will be brought through the new covenant. When he will forgive their sins and remember their iniquity no more. So that's very important to keep in mind how it's flowing the book. So in Jeremiah chapter 31, we saw earlier today, comes the great promise and prophecy of the new covenant that the Lord will be making. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And then he moved to verse 44. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Similarly, he says in chapter 33, verse 8. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. So Jeremiah is saying there is a new covenant and a new covenant people. And different from Israel where the people of the covenant, you had people who were not saved. You have unbelievers in the covenant. That's why you used to have the remnant inside the covenant, the covenant community, not with this new community. Under the new covenant community, all the members are what? Forgiven, pardoned, saved, regenerated. That's why we strive so hard in the church. It's our job to strive to make sure that the people who are being baptized, becoming members, they are people who match the description of the new covenant community. Amen? So that's what we see taking place. Uh, and he says, He will forgive his people's iniquity and their sin. He will do what? Remember no more. That doesn't mean that God will have amnesia and forget about sins. That doesn't happen. God is omniscient. To remember is a covenantal term for acting. And the Lord remember His covenant. The Lord remember His promise to Abraham. And then He comes to act. So always when He remembers something, He's acting. When God remembers, He's coming to action. So when He says, and God will remember no more, means He will not act in judgment against us. Because we have been forgiven in Christ, in the Messiah. And that's what the prophet Isaiah will develop. So as we look to the book of Isaiah, we see the development of this. If you think about the new covenant promised by Jeremiah, how this new covenant will be established will be through the suffering servant that the prophet Isaiah keeps talking about. So... Especially, for example, in, in Isaiah 40, also, Isaiah 40 through 55 is also called the book of consolation or the book of comfort. Because it's telling of the forgiveness of sins that the Lord is bringing to his people. So he opens that session, chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her warfare with whom? With the Lord. They were in war against each other. Sin. That her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So Isaiah is opening, he starts speaking about this new exodus. There will be a new exodus, there will be a new covenant. And this new covenant, this new exodus, will be a covenant of peace. Why is the new covenant called a covenant of peace? When do you have peace between the parties? You have peace between the parties once they are reconciled. There's reconciliation. There's harmony. And how is that accomplished? Through forgiveness of sins. That's why it's called the covenant of peace. Because there will be forgiveness. And, and that's where he takes us to Isaiah chapter 53 to talk about how this covenant will be established through the Messiah, the suffering servant. And we read in, in verse 4, it says that he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. And the word for bearing 
We saw that in the first sermon, nasa is the same word used in Exodus 34, verse 7, when it says that God is forgiving. Forgiving. Hebrew nasa. And then that's the same word used in Leviticus 16 for the goat that bears the iniquity of God's people. So here you see that God is showing us that His forgiving character is demonstrated through the sacrifice, and the ultimate sacrifice is the suffering servant who will bear, who will forgive our sins by removing from us. So it's beautiful how Isaiah says that the suffering servant will die as a guilt offering. Michael Morales says that the guilt offering, like the purification offering, was a sacrifice given by Yahweh for cleansing Israel from sin, making divine forgiveness possible. That's all we see about this beautiful death of Christ. We will be a guilt offering, providing forgiveness. Not only that, if you go to, go to Isaiah 53, and you see how a beautiful description of our forgiveness of sins. Starting in chapter 52, in chapter 52, verse 13. Or 15, verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The word for sprinkle here is the same Hebrew word used in Leviticus 16 for the sprinkling of the blood for forgiveness of sins. And that's what Isaiah is doing with us, taking us to the Day of Atonement, taking us to the Passover, to show how this Messiah, this suffering servant, is the fulfillment of all these things. So the ground of forgiveness of sin is the death of the blameless sacrifice, the Messiah. Therefore, in, in chapter 53, look at chapter 53 of Isaiah, verse 5. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? Peace, shalom. Forgiveness of sins through the Messiah, bringing peace. No wonder when you come to chapter 54, look at chapter 54 of Isaiah. Sing, O barren, sing. Your sins have been forgiven. Remember David, forgive me and I will sing praises to you. Sing, O barren. And then he goes on to talk about how this new covenant is a covenant of peace in chapter 54. So, a beautiful development, especially through the book of Isaiah. And last, and he finished here, just, I had to pick one and I chose Zechariah. I could pick so many others. But Zechariah, similarly to Isaiah, he prophesied that the death of the Messiah was part of God's purpose to bring forgiveness and restoration of covenant relationship. And Zechariah, following, following Isaiah and Ezekiel, he says that during this new covenant, the Spirit of God would be poured out on God's people. And in chapter 13, if I'm not wrong, chapter 13, no, chapter 12, verse 10, Zechariah 12, 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. So the Holy Spirit would bring what upon God's people? Repentance, conviction of sins. Isn't that what the Gospel of John tells us when Jesus says, and I'm sending the Comforter. And He will do a bringing conviction. Conviction of sins. That's what we see Zechariah saying. Not only that, Zechariah also says that the shepherd will be stricken. Chapter 13, verse 7. He will be pierced. And then look at chapter 13, verse 1. In light of all these blessings, Zechariah says, Oh, that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. That's why we sing, There is a fountain filled with what? With blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins. And when sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose what? Oh, oh. Amen. So, to finish, just briefly, what we saw. God alone can forgive our sins. That's what we see throughout the Old Testament. Forgiveness of sins is the fruit of God's sovereign mercy. Have mercy on me, David says. 
The temple was the place where sacrifices for sins were presented. The temple was the location where God pardoned his people's sins. Fourth, Jews and Gentiles alike were required to repent, confess their sins, and believe in God's promise of forgiveness through the atoning sacrifice. Fifth lesson that we learn, we find a holy tension between a God who is always ready to forgive and a holy God when he says, it's enough. A call to be forgiving and also a call to call God's judgment. Six, under the new covenant, forgiveness of sins would be provided for all the members of the covenant community. A new heart would be given, the Holy Spirit would be given, so the spirit within God's people would enable them to constantly repent of their sins and be washed. Seven, forgiveness of sins leads to singing and praising the Lord, and that's what we see throughout the scriptures. Single barren. Why? Because your sins have been forgiven. Psalm 32. Psalm 51. Psalm 103. It's all, all about blessing the name of the Lord because you have been forgiven. Why do we sing in this church? God commands us and we sing because we have been forgiven. That's why we sing joyfully. We sing loudly. We sing full of awe and reverence. Why? Because we have been forgiven. And that's the mark throughout the whole story of the Bible. Those who are forgiven much, they sing much. Even if you have a bad voice, you've got to be singing. Amen? And last point, eight. The Old Testament shows how the Messiah would be the one who would become the perfect sacrifice. The, of, the prophecy of Isaiah, Zechariah are very clear that our Lord Jesus is the only acceptable sacrifice to provide forgiveness of sins. So as we walk through the whole Old Testament and all this beautiful plays in the drama of forgiveness, you see that's taking us to the telos, to the culmination in Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of all these beautiful things. He was cut off of the land of living. What is that? Exile. That goat that was sent away from the land of living. That's Jesus Christ. He becomes our Passover lamb. So Isaiah says, Surely, surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us shalom, peace. And with His wounds we are healed. That's why Zechariah says, The fountain is open. The fountain is open. And the fountain is, the fountain is open today. <laughs> Amen. And the Lord is calling. He's calling. Plunge yourself underneath that flood. And you will lose all your guilt and stain. The fountain is open today. I don't know about tomorrow. Only He knows. But today and right now is open anyone to come and find forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Amen. And we are about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a celebration of what? Our forgiveness of sins. That's why we celebrate. Think about God. He could have created so many other things and instituted and commanded us to do. But He says one thing, I want my church. I want my church. To celebrate the forgiveness of sins. By symbolically sitting at the table with me. Why? Because fellowship in ancient times and even today in the Middle East is reserved for friends only. And the Lord saying, I have forgiven you. You are not only my friend, you are not only my slave, but you are my child. And I want you sitting with me at my table. So forgiving table for forgiven people to celebrate the forgiveness of God. Amen. Oh Lord, we cry out for your help as we are about to partake of the Lord's Supper. Help us to partake with awe, reverence, fear, joy, remembering, acting upon the beautiful truth that we have been forgiven. 
Lord, help us to see as we are walking through the scriptures how holy you are, how righteous you are, and yet how forgiving you are. Thank for your mercy. Lord, I pray for those here who have not been pardoned by you. I pray that today, today, your Holy Spirit will draw people to wash themselves in that fountain that's open in Christ Jesus, Lord. Thank you for this time together. Bless, I pray your blessing upon the Lord's Supper. We need you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.